Hello, I'm Edwina Johnson, Director of Byron Bay Writers' Festival. You're listening to a podcast with Chrissy Neen, David Van and Joshua Yeldum in conversation with Jane Caro about grief and creativity, recorded live at the 2015 Byron Bay Writers' Festival. For more information about the festival, please visit byronbayrightersfestival.com.au. We will begin. Welcome to this Byron Bay Writers' Festival session, Grief and creativity. This is a really interesting topic and luckily for me I have an incredibly talented, thoughtful and great variety of talent up here on the stage with me to bring their points of view to the idea of grief and how that interacts with creativity. I'm going to introduce each of them now and then they're going to speak for a few minutes about their books, about the topic, in any way they decide. Then I'm going to have a bit of a conversation with them, ask them some questions, and then um, hopefully about 15 minutes before the end, because this is only a three-quarter hour session, um, I'll throw it open to you to ask questions. I would um, like to emphasise that I want you to ask a question. And I'm really a very nice person, unless you start to make a really long, rambly statement and then... Oh, it's horrible what happens to me. (laughs) So don't say you haven't been warned. Okay. Directly beside me is Chrissy Kinane. Chrissy is a writer of erotic fiction, memoir and poetry. She won the 2014 Thomas Shapcott Poetry Prize for Eating My Grandmother. (laughs) A grief cycle. That title gets even better, you know, if you just let me say the whole thing. So I'm very much looking forward to hearing from Chrissy about eating her grandmother. Next to Chrissy is Josh Eldham. Josh is a Sydney-based artist and filmmaker. He created his first book, Surrender, a journal for my daughter, as a chronicle of his life, his work and the lessons he learnt along the way. It is a very beautiful book. I recommend it to you. And beside Josh is David Van. David is an author and creative writing professor at the University of Warwick. In the Wikipedia entry I read about this, it helpfully said, in England, (laughs) which made me wonder how many universities of Warwick they were and what other countries they could possibly be in. I guess it was a hedge for Americans. Don't know where anything is. Yeah, where anything... Oh, okay, okay. That that totally explains it to an Australian (laughs) audience. Thanks, David. His books include Caribou Island, the short story collection Legend of a Suicide, and Aquarium. I'm really looking forward to hearing what these people have to say, but I wanted to start. For the first time ever, any session or talk that I've ever started with a quote from the current Queen who said, and I thought it was rather lovely, that grief is the price we pay for love, which is an interesting, simple, but very astute thought. Rather surprised me coming from the Queen, which was rather unfair of me, really. Why should I be surprised? But I was. Chrissy doesn't have to refer to that at all. (laughs) We may come back to it later. Chrissy, it's all yours. Thanks, Jane. Um, I'm on this panel really because of this little book which is the um, Thomas Shapcott winner, um, the poetry book that I've written which is called Eating My Grandmother, um, A Grief Cycle and I suppose um, unfortunately because I'm quite 
known for my erotic fiction, there's been a little bit of misunderstanding occasionally with the title. (laughs) 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 Which I didn't really think through um, (laughs) until it was too late. Uh, But but be assured, this is not an erotic fiction book at all. Um, And it is a book about grief. Um, But but actually, the two books that um, I've released this year are intertwined um, irreparably. And so the other book, which is the erotic fiction book, is Holly White, The Adventures of Holly White and the Incredible Sex Machine. A little bit easier to know that's about erotica. But I was actually in the process, I was on deadline to finish this book, which came out um, earlier this year in May. Um, and it's a romp, it's a comedy, it's sexy, um, it you know, references the classics of erotic fiction. So I was, it, I was really kind of enmeshed in this idea of, of eros. Um, and in the middle of that process, my grandmother died. And um, my grandmother was the most important figure in my life. She raised me um, and she um, really is the, the kind of... The, the per, you know, everyone has one person in their life who they um, think was their foundation block. And for me, my grandmother has always been my foundation block. She was 98, so it was no surprise that she was going to die, and I knew that she was going to die at some point. Um, but when she did die, what did surprise me was my reaction to it. Uh, so I... F- suddenly came back from the process of dealing with the ashes of my grandmother and realised that there was no way I could go back to finishing um, The Adventures of Holly White and The Incredible Sex Machine. That suddenly felt completely unimportant to me. Um, The only thing that was important was this feeling that we are all going to die and this sudden knowledge, which you kind of all know, but it wasn't until this moment that I realised that I was going to die and that um, anything that I was doing didn't feel like it was of that same importance anymore. And I wasn't able to write, so what I did was um, I did lots of waking up in the middle of the night and what was swirling around in my head were phrases and ideas and so I jotted them down because they wouldn't get out of my head. And after a couple of days of doing this, I had this notebook full of these jottings and um, a friend of mine looked at it and kind of went, this is poetry, what you're writing is poetry. And that surprised me too. And encouraged by um, a few poets that I have in my life, I actually put the book project aside and focused on the only thing that was happening, which was this poetry writing. And I wrote obsessively for a period of a month. I just um, let myself write everything that I was thinking about my grandmother, about my relationship to her, about what was happening to me in this very strange, intense process of grief. And I wrote it all down. At the end of that month, I found that I had a poetry collection. I had this book and didn't know what to do with it. And again, my poet friend suggested that um, I enter the Thomas Shatcott Poetry Award with it um, and and was again surprised to win. So um, becoming a poet was this surprise of grief for me. Um, and I don't think that I, I... I know that I would not have made the decision to become a poet and to write a poetry book or to think into the future towards writing poetry without having this very displaced and disconnected feeling for the period of that, that grieving. 
Um, I don't think that that... I think it was a gift, actually. I kind of come to this point um, in the process where the book is done. And as soon as this book was done, I could turn around the next day and go back to Holly White and her sex machine. That was no problem at that point. It was like there was a very defined day where I woke up, this book was done, and I could go back to my life. I could go back to who I was and what I was doing, but I brought this extra layer of the knowledge of that period of grieving with me. So um, it, that period in my life that lasted for a month was horrible and has changed me, but I also feel like it was some kind of a gift to me because it changed my life irreparably forever. Like it or not, I now have to be a poet as well as a novelist <laughs> and put that on my CV. But um, yeah, so good and bad all in the one hit for me. And that is the story of the book. So what if you hadn't been a writer? What, what else might you have done with that extraordinary emotion if words had not been your... Because most people are not in the middle of writing a novel when something absolutely terrible happens mm. to them. Words are not necessarily their skill base. What do they do, perhaps, with... The that? only other time that I've had that intensity of emotion... I, um, go f I have gone through really quite intense periods of depression. Mm -hmm. um, particularly before I had my book published, I would go through very quite, quite dangerous periods of depression. Um, and during those periods of depression, what I did was paint. Um, and it, it I think I felt like the poetry, the process of writing the poetry was really similar to what I did when I was painting, which was almost a, a you know, you're kind of channeling your own subconscious. Um, it wasn't an, an intellectual exercise writing this book. Editing it was, but writing it wasn't. It was a very pure emotional experience. And I felt that with the painting that I did during my periods of depression. Um, I would kind of not even know what I was doing. It would be like a blur until I'd finished the painting and then I could, you know, I would feel well enough to go back to my life again. So I suppose um, for artists, we're lucky enough to have that other kind of thing, whether it be painting, whether that be poetry, whether that be, I suppose musicians probably have the same thing where they go into themselves to create music. But it's almost like... It, making sense of the world without having to use your intellect to make sense of the world because sometimes in some experiences you can't make sense of the world using your intellect for you know no matter what you do it it doesn't the sense anything sensical is nonsensical during that intense emotional period thank you Josh, mm. your story. <laughs> um, well, you, you said I have five minutes to talk about grief and it just, uh, it activates you, doesn't it, when you go through your life about how grief arrived. Uh, I can share maybe four little sequences. Uh, I was eight years old. Um, I was uh, not very comfortable in my own body. I had very low self-esteem and I had dyslexia at school, so I was a failure at, at everything. And um, I hid in my creative world. I had a little book and I, I just drew and drew and I drew mostly so that I wouldn't be beaten up um, to the point where uh, that was um, in the grief of being beaten up, uh, drawing was a, a place to one, entertain the other bullies 
and try and get them to leave me alone, but uh, also gave me a, a taste of this was a place that I could possibly um, feel comfortable in, in my own skin, was in my, in my creative world. And then it came to a, a massive conclusion in the dormitory. I was in a, in a room of about 25 boys. And uh, one night I had a Snoopy, probably a bit for too long uh, at that age, you know, nine, I had a Snoopy and the boys took it and went downstairs and they all wiped their ass on it and then brought it back upstairs and put it in my arms. So when I woke up, I was, I was covered in shit and they were all around me laughing at me and my mum came and picked me up and she wanted to just remove the Snoopy, just quickly get rid of the evidence and I wouldn't let her. And I was determined to make a ritual in the garden because we had done that with my dog. So I was determined to dig a hole and bury Snoopy with a ceremony with my mother. And we did this. And this was, if I look at the thread of my life, the next three stories, you'll see how ceremony comes into place. And from such a young age, ceremony of burying this doll was, uh, in through my grief, was a way of at least bringing some form of ritual that w would be attached to, to this emotion. The, the second major point in my life was I was 19 years old. I was at 6,000 metres on a mountain in Venezuela and Andes alone. I'd been alone for two and a half weeks. I had trained for years to climb mountains on my own. And this really was my first really major climb. It was a six-week climb alone in total. Uh, but I reached a point in the landscape where for the first time I became completely disorientated where I was and I was that true word lost and that feeling was uh, was so many emotions of not knowing where I, I could go to be safe and in that feeling the first thing I did was I made a stone marker as I was crying I made a stone marker on a point just to make a reference point of my situation. And I made this marker, and by lifting rocks and getting more and more rocks in my despair, because I didn't know where to go to get back down into the valley, because at that point of year, mist comes in and it stays for three months, and I didn't know that. So below me was a blanket of mist, and I couldn't even, wouldn't even be able to make my way through the jungle back down. And so I made this marker, and as I started laying rocks and building a can, it's almost like I started to tap into sens sensory, new sensory kind of awareness that I had to just be still. That was the only thing left for me to have, was to be still. Uh, and so by the time I had used all my energy, my adrenaline, to build this rock, I just sat there. And as I sat there, I camped, and I was there for three or four days in this area. I had mint tea and rice, and finally, I just had an instinct to head down this other valley. And as I did that, a really amazing thing happened. A man came out of the fog swearing at me and telling me in Spanish what an idiot I was and yelling at me. And he turned out to be a hermit that lives up there. <laughs> and he pointed to my shoes and, and was saying, give me your shoes. And I went, I can't. They're, they're the only shoes I have, except I have some leather shoes, I mean, I don't speak Spanish, but this is all in sign language. I have leather shoes in my backpack. I can't possibly climb a mountain in my dad's dinner shoes. And he kept saying, give them to me and I'll get you out of here. And I, I gave them to him and I wore my leather shoes. But instead of getting me out of there, he got me 
in there. He, he and I, for two weeks, lived together without language, but he showed me his world. And for six years, I then made a movie about what we experienced. Um, and then the last story, or two more uh, quick vignettes, uh, was um, there was a murder in my family, and the police took me to a forest where there was a grave where my aunt was buried with her husband by, by, by my cousin. And uh, we were with my family, and there, there was the grave that he had dug in the woods, and the police gave us space. And as, I'm, as we're praying with my family, um, I saw charcoal just near my feet. And I knew I, as we left, I had to grab some charcoal, not knowing completely the whole storyline, but I took the charcoal and about three years later in this little brown bag in my art studio is this charcoal in a bag from the, next to the grave where there'd been a bushfire. And um, three years later I made my first mark with it. And the grief was still there in the mark. The mark had no creative essence, it was just sorrow. And then only recently the mark has started to become a creative place of expression. And so what fascinated me was in, the, in true places of grief, we, we are so uh, overwhelmed by our sorrow that we can't use our senses at that point to get out. We feel like we're trapped, everything is, is doomed. And it just t took me repetition with the charcoal to start to see new life come out of that mark. And it's in the new life, in the bushfire, out of the burning off where we, we feel such sorrow, it's the new life that is a natural equation to all evolution. So new life, one must have their senses open to see what happened in your life that, that has a chance for newness or, or hope. And the last story is I was told by the doctors after that, a year after, that I couldn't have children, that I was infertile with my wife and again, I had the training to know that I had to go back into nature and camping on the Hawkesbury, there was this owl that was in my, where I was swagging and I felt that that owl was stealing my embryos from my wife and I and I just, in my dreaming, I started to make paintings for the owl to please ask it to bugger off and, and not take our embryos from us and I made over three years of paintings to this spirit to please leave us alone and then we became pregnant and and then my daughter was born and I started to give thanks to them and I started to paint more and more paintings to them and now they start to teach me about flight about teaching me to fly over myself as if I was a landscape and look at myself and see the fertile parts of my body and the dry parts of my life that I haven't given love to certain people and I need to bring fertile knowledge from the abundant part of my life and help heal wounds with friends or, you know, so the owls are, are now a, a, a teacher for me. So they're the kind of vignettes of grief. Thank you. Thank you. David. Oh, well, that was really cool. <laughs> uh, yeah, and um, yeah, you're not really like the men in my family either, <laughs> can, I, can I just say. <laughs> That's great. Um, so, uh, 
Yeah, I think that grief is, is definitely the, for me, has been the strongest engine for creativity uh, for, for my fiction writing. And um, I've just been thinking, I've been sitting here trying to describe how that works. And so I think the way it works is that my books are all focused on landscape, on places that were important in Alaska or California where I grew up. And uh, they work uh, like a Rorschach test, which is where you take ink on a piece of paper and then fold the paper so it just makes random blotches. And when you show someone uh, that kind of paper in a, a therapy session or something, they, they don't say it's just ink on paper. They, they say, that reminds me of my grandmother's um, walnut orchard back when I was, you know, they, they, you can't, in other words, the human mind can't see anything in a neutral way where our minds are pattern makers and we make meaning and shape and story out of everything inevitably, but especially random patterns that don't have a set meaning and the natural world, like forests, oceans, uh, such. But the key to having this work in fiction for me is that I have to have a strong connection to the place. So it has to be Alaska where I grew up, the rainforest that seemed uh, mythical and, and animated to me where I felt chased by wolves and bears and, and um, always felt watched and where the, the plants are really strange, like the stinging nettles and the bright waxy flowers and the conchs, these fungal growths on the trees that we would knock off. You know, it has to have become a, a part of where the landscapes become a part of my story. Um, so then I have the character just look at that landscape and inevitably as they describe the landscape, they're describing their own sense of self and vision. They describe the larger outlines of their self. And as that shifts through a book, that's how you get the sense of a dramatic arc and a story developing. Because I think books are finally about our shifting senses of ourselves and, and relationships to others. That, that that's really what we mean by vision in a piece. So um, what's great about grief in, in this regard, uh, and why I feel very lucky to have five suicides and a murder in my family, as, is because the, um, uh, the grief, as, as you said in the quote, uh, is uh, the price we pay for love. Grief essentially is love, and it's love that no longer has any place to go, uh, which is uh, uh, such an overwhelming kind of experience. Like when my father killed himself when I was 13, I still loved him afterward, and, and I was an insomniac for about 15 years because lying there at night, I still felt like, I still felt all this love for him, but there was nowhere to put it. You know, it's, it just didn't have any place. And so if I'm in writing, I'm describing a landscape. I'm describing the, for, describing the forest in Alaska, and I'm feeling this grief about my lost father. Then of course that forest is going to take all kinds of shapes and suggest things. There's going to be vision in that description. It's going to create fiction. So to me, that's how it actually works. Um, and What's interesting about that quote, I love the quote from the Queen, because love, in my experience, is this thing that lasts longest in the grief. So for three years, I told everyone that my dad died of cancer because the suicide was so shameful. So the shame was the first part. And that, that took three years for that to drop away where I could finally admit that, that he had died by suicide. And I know you're not supposed to say killed himself. You're supposed to say died by suicide. But anyway, it kind of felt like he killed himself. Um, and uh, the next part was the, uh, the guilt. Uh, he had asked me to come spend a year back in Alaska with him, and I said no, and then a couple weeks later is when he killed himself. And so I felt really guilty, like if I had said yes, maybe my father would still be alive. And then for years I went through thinking, 
that um, we shouldn't feel guilty. Uh, you know, it's his fault he did it. And it's really not, everyone in my family has their own guilt story. Like my uncle was at the airport with him and supposed to not leave him alone, separate his gun and shells, go to Alaska with him. But my dad talked him out of it at the airport and then went up and killed himself. Like everyone in the family had some story like that. And, and I, I don't think that, that the survivors of suicide who are going through bereavement should blame themselves. But after 35 years, I've come to think that, yeah, if, if I had said yes, he would have been alive at least longer. And we all did fail him in his last visit in various ways. Uh, my stepmother shouldn't have slept with him again at the end. And, and Doug shouldn't have left him, let him go up alone. And, and I should have said yes to going up there. So I, my, changing, my thinking's changed a bit on that. Um, but uh, there was also insomnia for 15 years. There was rage for about 30 years. And it took a long time to realize the reason I was so angry at him was because I felt like it should have been enough that we loved him, that, that I loved him. That should have been enough reason for him to stay. And that's why I was so angry. So it took like 30 years to figure that out about my anger, uh, which seems like incredibly dumb and slow, but uh, it took a long time. But, but the part that was left finally was the love for him. And I'm actually quite happy about that because I'd been afraid for a long time that I'd lose everything. Um, you know, sorry, I don't, I, 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 I talk about this all the time. I don't know why today, like the earlier panel too, is kind of getting me, but um, uh, it shouldn't. But, but anyway, um, I was afraid that I would lose him completely, like not feel anything anymore. And, and uh, that part doesn't go, that, that part. So, you know, mm -hmm. just missing him. Uh, but God. It's really sucky for talking about how it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, so I'm supposed to be talking about how it relates to fiction, but anyway, there's obviously still um, strong emotions around grief. Yeah. Like, it, and um, for me, it's 35 years. You know, it's a long time. So that is what ends up powering the uh, the the fiction. Um, you know, because tragedy is about failures of love, about how we didn't love or didn't take the right opportunity and ended up hurting each other and it failed. So anyway, sorry. No. I haven't done that before. Sorry. I feel quite honoured and privileged that all three of you have been so completely open and honest and real about what is very hard. Thank you. Mm. Um, I think all of us listening. You make me feel better about myself, David, because every time I read from this book, I cry. And I just, I kind of, I do feel a bit kind of like, oh, God, I shouldn't be doing that. Yeah, I don't ever do so, that. I, I, no, so that's good. Now yeah. I'm like, David Van did it. I can do it. That's <laughs> <laughs> okay. I think it's because the one before this was about <laughs> limits of forgiveness. I talked about my mom and all that. And then this, it's like two in a row. <laughs> just <laughs> we'll broken do a, me down. <laughs> we'll do a group hug in the signing table, I think. Come to Australia, we'll make you cry. <laughs> uh, <laughs> there are just so many things that the three of you have said, and I've been, you know, scribbling them down here, trying to sort of see some threads that, that perhaps we could, at risk of more tears, but I don't know, tears are lovely things, really. So I'd like to encourage you not to be afraid of more tears, nor do I want you to cry, really, either. Oh, crikey. I think I should just shut up and ask you a question. Um, there was one thing you said right at the end which really struck me as something I had never thought of before, David, and I'd love to hear the thoughts of both Josh and Chrissy about this. And that is that grief 
is a way of keeping the person alive. That as long as you continue to feel the pain of that grief, their memory is sharp. They, in some ways, still exist. And so whilst grief is painful and horrible, it's also something we hang on to. Is that, is that true for you as well, Chrissy, and you, Josh? Yeah, yes. I think there's also some guilt for... Um, like, I I've felt guilt after I had, I'd, you know, intensely sort of wallowed, I suppose, in my grief for the writing of this, which was useful to me. But then after this was written and I went back to my other life, um, there, was a, there was a lot of guilt about letting go of that grief, you know. It was kind of like... Because it was almost like I could quarantine that section off. I'd written that book, I'd gone through that, and then um, I could move on. And so there was a lot of guilt during that period of moving on and getting back to the sex comedy, where I'd kind of go, I can't believe it's like it didn't happen. It's like I now think I can go on and keep living um, now, even though at that time I didn't think I would. Um, and so there was that period of guilt, but... Um, but actually creating something like this um, means that that person is kept alive in the work you've created. So, I mean, I jokingly say I cry every time I read a poem from this book, but I do because when I read this book, uh, and particularly when I read it in public, I am immersed back in that period of grieving. It feels like I've gone back in time to that period of grieving. So it's kind of interesting that it's almost like she exists still in this, this book is like the memory of that period of grieving and I can access it at any time by going back and reading through that. Mm. So, um, yeah, it's, it's interesting how you're kind of working on that grief and creating art from that grief can, can keep that person alive as well. I mean, Josh, you, you, you were talking about the charcoal mm. and how that actually held... And I loved that you used the word sorrow. It suddenly struck me how rarely... We've, we've almost replaced sorrow with grieving or, you know, all that kind of thing, which is almost a more technical term, in a way, than sorrow. There's something... I just loved the use of that word. It felt so simple and it felt so... I don't know, old-fashioned, but in a... It felt like it was truer. Maybe mm. that's just me. Mm. Do, uh, tell me more about sorrow, your choice of word. Uh, w well, I think sorrow is more a search... For you're able to maintain a search for light when you're in a state of sorrow versus a state of grief. I think grief is you literally are under the blankets of your bed burrowing your body back into the earth because you can't face your head out to the sky. You are heading towards lava. And for me, sorrow is you can turn your head back out and you can carry the storyline of suffering but you're able to start to use your senses again. And for me... Uh, in my case, nature has been um, the profound teacher for me to learn over and over again that there is a continuation of sorrow in your life just as there is this concept of destruction and renewal. And so my training has been, um, in particularly in my, in my spiritual world, which is basically the same as my creative world, is that in order for me to search for light, I must be able to taste successfully taste consistently s sorrow or destruction but taste it in a way that it is magnificent and and what i mean by that is that i know creation must come from that burning off process so therefore uh i i use new new knowledge that i i you know been fortunate to receive to 
be aware of ahead of time that that sorrow, unless there's an accident, sorrow is, is heading. It's like a wind and start preparing. So I believe in navigation and I believe about nature provides you with hints that sorrow is coming if you are in tune. And therefore, um, uh, you know, many cultures uh, uh, celebrate the destruction operator as well as the creation. And so, you know, I, I tend to be, uh, I train myself to be a, a warrior. Uh, you know, like a Juna in Indian uh, storyline, that I will face, uh, uh, I will face darkness, and so therefore, an example is I trained myself at a young age to walk through forests at night, which was probably one of my greatest challenges because I was so scared, like many, of being outdoors at night. And now, uh, it, it, you know, that that training was, in a way, a metaphor for creativity to go beyond your own limitations, the forest, to see what, full, what, what more potential you have in your life, even if you are suffering. In that suffering could be even a new garden to discover. And I think that's where the creative language comes in. It allows us to discover uh, uh, new gardens in, in um, places of despair. Thank you. Thank you very much. So um, what you gave me there was that, and I'm, I'm you know, Crassly summarising this too much, mm. but that grief is, if you like, the crisis, the thrashing about. Mm. Sorrow is the burden that you then take up yes. and carry with you wherever you go, mm. and that burden is both wonderful and terrible, mm. but it is with you wherever you go. It mm. lasts. Mm. Grief perhaps does not last quite so long. It moves into, grows into and becomes, and creativity is part of that well, burden, I, wonderful I think thing. evolution <laughs> is... We, in grief, we are trying to stop yes, our escape. evolution and we know that nature won't permit that. Yeah. Thank you. David, you, do you have a, a comment on this idea of that the, the, the gifts that grief give and sorrow perhaps give in terms of holding on to and... Almost, I liked when Chrissy said it's. She feels felt guilty when she forgot the person mm. by being absorbed in the um, novel that was completely removed from what she'd just been through. Do you identify with that as well? That sense that grief. We almost feel like we ought to hold on to it. I, I do feel like you you can die twice. You die once, and then if everyone who loved you forgets you, you die a second time. And that's the final one, and I, it does seem like it's it's you know I don't I don't want that to um, you know happen at least yet uh, for my dad. Yeah, yeah. So I know my husband lost his mother. She died of illness when um, he was 11 years old, and he's 61 now, and he still speaks to her every morning in the shower. Mm -hmm. He just has a normal old chat mm. to his mum. And I, I, I think that's his way of maintaining her presence in his life when he lost her at 11 years old. And um, that's, I always find that both amusing and lovely that mm -hmm. they have this chat or mm. he has one with her anyway and keeps her alive. Now we have 10 minutes to go according to my iPad which of course I believe implicitly. Um, so please, there must be questions. We have one volunteer with a microphone. 
So be patient and don't uh, yell out until the mic comes to you. Notice the lady at the front here. I'd, I'd like to add one thing if I oh, could. Oh, of course, David. Just um, a warning about uh, grief and creativity, which is just that it takes a long time to figure out how to write from grief because it, it since it's overwhelming at first, like I ended up just describing like the day we found out my dad died and that just never worked as a story to describe the grief right away on page one directly. So it, it does take some time to, to figure out how to get it to be a kind of power source or engine for creativity and, and not have it just be um, you know, something overwhelming that keeps you from doing anything. And, and, and so for me, I, I mentioned in another panel the other day that it was through realizing that stories are indirect, that there's mm -hmm. subtext, that you always, I had a great workshop with Grace Paley where she said that every good story is at least two stories. That if you want to tell the story of your grief, you have to find some other story to tell mm -hmm. that allows you to tell that one. Your grief story comes out from behind this other surface story that, that you can tell which might be lighter or lovelier, um, easier to read in some ways. Mm. And I, I, I'd like to add that I think that's true. I think that there's different, there is a difference between writing for therapy, which will, will, might heal you and your heart, and to um, thinking that that particular work of writing um, will then translate to other people. Yeah, the difference is well. it has an aesthetic goal. Mm. And so as an aesthetic goal, it has to be about the beautiful and their subtext, whereas if you're just doing something for therapy. You could do journaling, for instance, where there's no subtext, it's a direct account, mm. it's not transformed into the beautiful, it's just exactly what you feel. Mm. So it's grief plus discipline, plus a kind of yeah, I, difference you know, of purpose. The, what happened for me, the, the breakthrough was to read Marilyn Robinson's novel, Housekeeping, mm. and hear that, that lovely, generous voice there, and to approach my father's story from a lovely, generous voice that was calm, and, and like enjoying describing fish and what Southeast Alaska looks like instead of going right for the grief. Like that was the breakthrough for me. Mm. I think uh, creativity can be your most dearest friend in times of, of tragedy and I think creativity can be that creature, that personality that's under the sheets with you where you can't see sunlight yet. It can start to, and as you do start to see shadows through the sheets of the bed, they start to be puppets and play. And, and I think this is why I, I think a lot of us respect our creative space so intimately. Yeah. New life in the charcoal, mm. as you put it. Mm. Do you have the microphone? Josh, I was interested in how you've used symbology and I was wondering mm. how with Chrissy and David, symbology might have they used symbology to the same because it seems quite healing th through that grief process and how it worked for david and chrissy I, I i can add to that um with with this particular book one way to get into rather than just to spilling pure emotions on the page was that i tried to find um other people's way of dealing with grief as a way of of speaking to my own experience of it um and so a lot of this book um is actually about um cannibalizing um the dead and um both literally in the terms of when i actually was left with the ashes my first instinct was to take a grain of my grandmother's ashes and to eat it mm. and then i became quite addicted to this um this process of 
taking of stealing little grains of her and eating her, um, which could have become, you know, a kind of psychosis if I didn't have this book to put it into. Um, so that became, I, it made me think <laughs> cannibalism, what is cannibalism? And it made me do a lot of research um, into cannibalism and stuff. So I think, um, and grieving processes that involve cannibalism. Um, and so that, I suppose those symbols became important to me because I needed to make sense of my first instinct, which was to literally eat my grandmother. And I needed to know what eating a person was in the world, Sim you know, symbolically as well as physically. I, I became a new age believer in high school for about three years. And I, I was the full enchilada for believer. I mean, I did, uh, I taught relaxation and, and meditation workshops. I did fire walking and helped like with the fire and stuff. I uh, tried to walk on water numerous times, crashing into mountain lakes and hot tubs, thinking this time my feet might hold and read uh, Carlos Castaneda and all the kind of dreaming things and, and, uh, and dream workshops and Betty Bethard's a mystic and I was going to become a mystic and not go to college and uh, so all of that was tremendously helpful and healing for uh, trying to figure out everything with my father. It was an important part of grieving. The bad part for me was that it turned me into a selfish little monster where all the other people I met were just teaching me a lesson toward my transcendence. So they weren't really real. You know, their suffering wasn't really real. I took on the very worst and most selfish aspect of what you could get from the New Age. And so my novel Dirt is about that, about how philosophy can lead to barbarity. Um, as, as Galen becomes a little monster. Uh, so I, I luckily was deprogrammed in college by a, a, a history of science class and a, a religious studies class. And I say luckily not because I think everyone should be deprogrammed, but because I needed to be deprogrammed because I really was a monster. It, it wasn't good. It wasn't a good fit. Thank you. Another question? <laughs> There's one right over there, gentleman in red. Um, I'm wondering about multiple grief, where if you've lived through an epidemic, where you experience 20, 30, 40 deaths of friends, family members, partners, uh, which is what I deal with for the last 30 odd years. And I've actually found that the grief goes beyond creativity and that you're unable to write about it because you've had so much of it. Mm. And it's only now, 20 years, 20 or more years after the events, which are still going on, that I've been able to start writing about it. So I was wondering if any of the panellists had any comments about life events like that. Mm. I have such limited experience with that. I, I have uh, friends in San Francisco, I was teaching there, who because of AIDS had lost so many friends over time. They had had just a, uh, a sort of relentless uh, cycle of, of grief, grief and loss. And it was still fueling their, their poetry and their fiction, um, uh, but there's definitely a kind of weariness uh, to it. It was really tough. And, and my stepmother has had six or seven deaths uh, it wasn't just my dad. She had lost her, her parents to a murder-suicide, right? 11 months before, my dad killed himself while talking on the phone with her. Her mother had shot her father with a shotgun, then shot herself with a pistol. So she had these, 
these uh, series of events that she had to go through. And, and she was so strong in getting through it, but she finally uh, sort of succumbed to prescription medication, like got hooked on that for a while, and her life spiraled down. Then she finally pulled out of it again. And then she almost died because of some intestinal thing. She was in like a coma for a while and whatever. And everyone, she was suffering so much, the whole, most of her family wanted her to die. They wanted to like pull the plug. And she managed to pull out of that. And she's still cheery as ever. So I, <laughs> she has limits. You know, she went into the drugs. But I, I like what you said about at the end, after a certain number of years, being able to use it again in some way and, and move forward. I think it's amazing. I, I haven't had to face anything like that myself. But, but uh, there, there's that I, French idea of resilience or the kind of endurance in people. Like, I think we can amaze ourselves with how much we can endure. We also yeah. need to remember that it's relatively recently that we're as removed from death as we are. Mm, yep. A hundred mm -hmm. years ago, for example, women routinely would have 12 children, of which two lived. So that multiple deaths, multiple losses right. was probably more normal. Mm. Right. I was um, going to add to that. Um, I, I think what happens to you is you become someone like my grandmother, who um, even in this book, although it's, you know, I adore my grandmother, I loved her, um, she, was a, she was a horrible person at times and really cruel and really strong and tough. Um, and I think that came from, she was from the former Yugoslavia and um, she never spoke once about what she went through um, in, when she fled the former Yugoslavia and went to Egypt um, where she had my mother and my aunt. But um, it, it, um, it's come down. There's this thing of epigenetic change, which happens, which is a change that happens if you go through a trauma, your genes kind of remember that and pass it down to the generations. And I feel like I'm in some way um, a product of this incredible trauma that is silent, that she never talked about. But, and all these silences have added up to, you know, my, my early depressions. Uh, I feel like I'm living her hundreds of people that died, you know, her whole village that died. Um, and so, you know, for me, it, I feel like we used to deal with it in silence. And what happens is you pass it physically down to um, your children and to your children's children and they don't know why they are the way they are but actually I, you know, I, th I blame my depression on my grandmother's childhood and I think it's true. Josh, would you like to say something? I'm afraid we've got about uh, 50 well, seconds. I, as, you know, again, I turn to nature and, and after devastation of a storm and, and the smashing of landscape, um, what do plants do? They try to pick themselves up and search for light. And I think this is our story of humanity, is how will we bend our bodies and our minds to try and find the next morning sunlight? And each of us, to a certain degree, are in control of this navigation. And that's our story. interesting to, this is my last session of the Writers' Festival this um, year, to finish with such a interesting, profound and moving um, session and there's something about the feeling in the room that is very different from any session I have been in thus far this weekend. There's a sort of quietness and a slowness that I very much appreciate and I think that I owe it entirely to Chrissy Kinane, Josh Sheldon, and David Van. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, Thank you. Jane. Thank Can you. Thank you.
Can I say... Uh, can I add one element? I think it's also to the programmers of the festival to come up with this topic. Yes. So here, here yes, to the here, festival. Yes, here, here to them, yeah. too. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. This session was recorded live as part of Byron Bay Writers' Festival 2015. You can find other recorded talks and discussions from Byron Bay Writers' Festival on our website, byronbaywritersfestival.com.au and our iTunes.